This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Thanks very much, Bridget. And I'm delighted to be giving another Thomistic Institute talk for Trinity College students. Last time I was with you, we were actually meeting physically, but discussing the fantasy world of Narnia. And now we're meeting virtually, but discussing the very real world question of nationalism. Why this topic? Well, I'm not sure why you're interested enough in this topic to turn up, but I can tell you why I've been interested enough to prepare this talk. Although I love reading and teaching medieval theology, I do occasionally take a look at the world in which I'm living, and the twin ideologies of globalism and nationalism are clearly at the forefront of a lot of people's minds. We'll come to define nationalism shortly, but I'm interested in globalism as well, or internationalism, uh, broadly speaking, the idea that all forms of nationalism are problematic, that we are simply citizens of the world, and that any other conception of community leads straight to totalitarianism. And as we'll see, Catholic thought and teaching has traditionally had a lot to say in favour of a certain kind of globalism. And so I found myself asking to what extent Catholics should value nationhood or nationality in their political thinking, if at all. As well as this, in an Irish context in recent years, I found it interesting to see how contemporary political leaders have struggled to deal with the centenary celebrations of the foundational events of the Irish Republic, like the Easter Rising of 1916 and, and so on. How does an internationalist technocrat give a speech honouring members of a movement that was romantic and nationalist and violent? Well, with a certain amount of incoherence. And seeing this played out on several occasions, I found myself asking whether I, who certainly see all the benefits of internationalist technocracy, could do any better. And finally, I found myself, if not quite pricked into action, at least pricked into reflection by online commentary coming from many young conservatives, many of whom are more or less Catholic, but who are becoming more stridently nationalist. The most extreme case I saw recently was an article on a conservative student website founded, in fact, at Euro University. And the writer of this piece argued for a shift from Christian moral principles to nationalist moral principles, describing nationalism as a moral order. And I quote, we must draw our morals from nationalism, from our very essence, our national spirit. Mass migration, he argued, is the dilution and destruction of the nation, and thus it is evil. International law is the restriction of the nation, and thus it is evil. The family unit strengthens the nation, and thus it is good. Protecting the environment allows our nation to survive, and thus it is good, and so on. You can see how his moral reasoning um, works, if you can call it moral reasoning. Now, that position of his is very rare, and an unthinking globalism is a lot more common, but it's still worth asking how as Catholics, we should respond to um, a nationalist position like this, an extreme nationalism. This writer noted well that his form of nationalism involves moving away from Christian principles, but many others who adopt similarly nationalist positions present themselves as defenders of Christian civilization, a defense which seems to me to consist mostly in posting crusader memes online. And I still think it's worth asking whether the nationalism adopted in such cases 
is really an appropriate bulwark for Christianity. So in this talk, I'll be drawing on Catholic social teaching from the last 150 years of popes, as well as the thought of St. Thomas Aquinas, you won't be surprised at that, and others in his tradition, and of course, the scriptures. And on your handouts, you'll uh, find most of the texts I'll be referring to. And if you're interested in further reading, I'd recommend above all that you explore the compendium of social doctrine of the church, either online or, or in print. I really encourage you to, to get your hands on that and explore it. And finally, just to make clear that I'm not intending here to promote a particular political program, I'm simply hoping that by the end of the talk, we'll have greater clarity in our Christian thinking about the nature and value of the nation. And I'm hoping too that we'll have more questions about all of this by the end of the talk than we do now. So, what is a nation? It's a huge question, and rather than treat every possible definition, I'll give my, my own definition, based in part on the writings of Henri Grenier, a Canadian Thomistic philosopher. And so here's my definition um, of a nation, insofar as it can be defined. A nation is a large community of human beings who feel similar to one another and distinct from all other humans on the basis of some or all of the following. Language, customs, real or imagined kinship, social institutions, shared stories and songs, and so on. Now, this is quite a, a large and loose definition and even a little vague, but this vagueness is unavoidable when attempting to account for so many particular circumstances. A nation is not something that can be delineated with anything like scientific precision, but the phenomenon, I think, is, is very real. And like so many things that are important to talk about, it's difficult to talk about with much precision, but that doesn't excuse us from talking about it at all. So based on this understanding of the nation, it should be fairly clear that nation and state, national community and political community are distinct, at least in thought, and need not be identified at all. So there could be a state which contains more than one nation, more than one large group of people who feel uh, uh, similar to one another based on customs, language, and so on, and distinct from other groups within the nation. So we could think of perhaps Spain as an example of this, or Belgium, or Switzerland, for example. I lived in Switzerland for, for three years, uh, and I was astonished at the extent to which um, sort of this national feeling that I'm speaking about was localized in cantons rather than extended to the, um, the entire territory of the state. Or we could think of states whose citizens belong to bigger national communities. Think of states like San Marino or Liechtenstein. I don't think anyone would really claim there's a Liechtensteinian nation as distinct from um, the, the nations around. And there are some nations, like the Kurds, for example, who do not have any corresponding state yet. Even states which look like straightforwardly nation states, Poland, for example, even states like that always have significant national minorities and also diasporas. What I hope is clear also is that I'm not using this word nation to mean only an ethnic community, a community of common ancestry. In the case of some nations, this will be an important element. So my experience in Iran suggests that such is the case there, that um, this idea of common ancestry is very important to what you might call the Iranian nation. 
but other nations are comfortably and stably multi-ethnic and find commonality by other means, shared celebrations, shared history, music, and so on. And Trinidad and Tobago, I think, is possibly a good example of this. So when I say nation, I'm not just referring to common descent, but to the whole matrix of forces that binds a particular people together and distinguishes them from other groups of people. And it seems to me that if we understand nations in this way, then long before the nation state and the rise of nationalism, nations have simply been around, arising naturally by the activity of men and women. Nations have been coming into existence, ceasing to exist, merging with one another, moving around, and so on. National communities might arise naturally, but they can also be shaped artificially by powerful storytellers who can select and emphasize certain elements in the cultural life of a particular national community. And history tells us that the rise of nation consciousness in the 19th century was a matter of poets and playwrights before it was a matter of bullets and bombs. And what these storytellers leave out of the story will be just as significant. As Ernest Renan once said, getting its history wrong is part of being a nation. But even if there are artificial aspects to nation building, national feelings are nevertheless very real. And I don't think they're entirely artificial or groundless. There are some reasonably solid foundations for this sense of affinity with and loyalty to people with whom I share, for example, language or particular customs. So St. Thomas, when he writes on the virtue of justice, he argues that I ought in justice to feel a certain debt of gratitude, pietas, to my patria, to the fatherland which provided me with nourishment, the land in which I, I grew up. And I think that as well as this civic pietas, we could imagine a kind of national pietas, a debt of gratitude owed not to my state and my fellow citizens, but to all those who went before me in my national community, all those who went before me and handed down to me my language, my cultural practices, habits of thought, recipes, and stories, and so on, the, that intangible matrix which has shaped each one of us. And we manifest, you could say, that national pietas on days of national celebration or commemoration. And so I'm thinking here, for example, um, of a uh, an Irish-American who grew up in America and was provided for by the state in the United States of America, but he celebrates St. Patrick's Day. And by celebrating St. Patrick's Day, he recognizes, he pays this, this debt of pietas to the community which handed down to him um, uh, various cultural practices which he has preserved. Just to take an example or two based on these definitions of the nation, um, Someone, for example, born to Chinese parents and raised in Australia. So the patria of this person on St. Thomas's account, the region in which they have found nourishment and education and so on, is Australia. But if that person is raised speaking Chinese at home and eating Chinese food and reading Chinese poetry, then all of these good things handed down to them seem to involve another debt the debt which I'm calling national pietas. Or we could imagine someone living in the Swiss canton of Freiburg, for example, who might feel 
very different and might feel very little in common with someone from the canton of Ticino. They speak different languages, they have different literature, different traditional architecture, and so on. And it's likely that each of these feels more attachment to their local hockey teams than to their national hockey team. But it's the Swiss Confederation that ultimately ensures their shared security and social welfare and so on. They might have little affinity for one another, but they belong to the same political community, a political community which, for all its diversity, is undoubtedly stable. So hopefully it's clear what I mean by nation and how I distinguish it from the state. But what is nationalism then? I'm going to say that nationalism, of which there are several varieties, is a claim about the proper relationship between the nation, usually my nation, and the state. One of these varieties of nationalism simply says that each nation has the right to form its own state, not just to exist as a community of people with a certain affinity, but as a political community governing itself. This position was typical of liberal, the liberal nationalism of the 19th century, like the Young Italy movement and the other Young Europe movements. Um, and it's part of what led to the breakup of large empires, as small nations and former colonies also found the confidence to desire to govern themselves. So that's nationalism as self-determination. But there are more extreme forms, which sometimes follow in its train, like nationalism as exclusion of minorities. Think of the ethnic cleansing that took place during the Bosnian War, or the ethnic cleansing that took place at the partition of India and Pakistan, or the treatment of the Jews um, uh, under the Nazis. And of course then, nationalism as superiority, national superiority, and political domination by force. Think there of the ideology of the German National Socialist Party. While the rise of nationalism might be a modern phenomenon, it seems to me actually that, as someone who reads the scriptures, that they contain a very clear example of a nation, the nation of Israel, a people marked out by common descent, chosen by God for God's own special purposes, a people observing common religious practices, shared beliefs, stories, a nation that is sharply distinct from all other nations, the Goyim. And against these other nations, God defends Israel. This national identity in the scriptures, it's manifested in the practice of male circumcision and the observance of the law of Moses and so on. The story of the Exodus is clearly foundational to this nation. God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt and the settling of Israel in its homeland. And it's interesting to see how this national story of Israel was used by Christian thinkers in many different contexts throughout history as a template for constructing or retelling their own national story. So Rowan Williams has recently shown how the story of Israel was used as a template for the story of the early British in the writings of Gildas in the 6th century. And also... Um, was used as a template for the, the nation of the English um, by Bede later on. And we see the same practice uh, in the works of Irish clerical intellectuals from the 7th century on, 
as they gave the Irish people a biblical prehistory, connecting Ireland in all kinds of ways with biblical figures and events, and making of the Irish people a new Israel, with Patrick, the lawgiver, as new Moses. We see this in you know, um, its complete form in the Lever Gavala Aaron. The same phenomenon among Armenians in the 8th century, the Franks of the Carolingian age with Charlemagne as the new David, the French in the 14th century, described by a pope, a French pope, no surprises, as being like the Israelites, selected as the Lord's special people, as the French. Also, the English under Cromwell saw themselves as a new Israel, and the Dutch Republic also in the 17th century, and Afrikaners in South Africa. So based on that list alone, you can get a sense of the varying purposes, and not always noble, to which this identification of our nation with Israel was put. If the Afrikaners are Israel, then you don't have to try too hard to figure out who the Goyim are. If the story of Israel's election was all these Christian thinkers had, it's easy to see how the Bible might inspire a very narrow nationalism. Nationalism as exclusion of minorities, nationalism as national superiority. But the story is not just left at that in the scriptures. Already in the Old Testament, it's clear that while Israel is a chosen nation, its exclusivity is not absolute. The law of Moses makes clear that because Israel was once a wandering foreigner in Egypt, for that very reason, so Israel in its own land should be welcoming to wandering foreigners. This wonderful verse, Leviticus 19.32, When a stranger, a ger, sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. The stranger who sojourns with you shall be to you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So Israel's own national story provides the basis for a certain national openness. And the book of Ruth, of course, illustrates this in narrative form. Ruth, the Moabite, is adopted into the nation of Israel. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. The prophets, above all Isaiah, begin then to speak of a universal role for Israel. A time when Israel, the light of the world, will welcome all the nations, and all the nations will worship the God of Israel. Speaking now not their many languages, but united by one pure speech in Zephaniah's terminology. Gathered in the temple, which has become now a house of prayer for all peoples. And the prophet Daniel speaks of one who will come, the son of man, who will rule not just Israel, but all nations. For Christians, of course, Jesus is the son of man. Jesus is the figure in whom the special vocation of Israel begins to overflow to other nations. So in the Gospels, for example, we see Jesus traveling around Galilee of the Gentiles, Galil Hagoyim, and also praising the faith of a Canaanite woman in the district of Tyre and Sidon. We see him exercising a demoniac in Gentile Gerasa and praising the faith of a Roman centurion. He explicitly claims to be fulfilling the prophecies of universalism. His followers are to be the light of the world. He cleanses the temple to prepare it to be a house of prayer for all nations. 
And after rising from the dead, he sends out his disciples to all nations. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And this is exactly what his disciples do. At Pentecost, the Holy Spirit helps them overcome linguistic boundaries. And throughout the book of Acts, they're sent further and further out from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. The followers of Jesus rapidly become a community of faith which transcends national boundaries. And they clearly understood themselves to be taking up this prophetic task of universalizing the chosenness of Israel. Or as St. Paul says in his letter to the Galatians, spreading to the nations the blessing given to Abraham. And these early Christians, they look forward to a time when the temporary cities of this world will give way to the lasting city of God. When, as the book of Revelation tells us, a multitude from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and tongues, will stand before the throne and before the Lamb. We see the same universalist or globalist instinct among Christians in the second century. So this wonderful text, the letter to Diognetus from around the middle of the second century, describes Christians as people who fit in anywhere, following the customs of the place in which they live, but living always as sojourners, as people who pass through, because their true citizenship is heavenly. Quote, every foreign land is to them as their native country, and every land of their birth is a land of strangers. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven, unquote. And St. Justin Martyr, around the same time, in a debate with a contemporary rabbi, proudly proclaims that there is not one single race of men, whether barbarians or Greeks or whatever they may be called, nomads or vagrants or herdsmen living in tents, among whom prayers and giving of thanks are not offered through the name of the crucified Jesus. Not one single race of men is not represented in the church, Justin claims, and he claims this as a point of pride. So the biblical account of nationhood is not just that of a single chosen inward-looking people. It includes and affirms that national identity, but it moves from that point to a future vision of global unity. And the church, right from the beginning, sees itself as the first fruits and agent of that promised heavenly international peace, when all the temporary allegiances of this world will give way to our one lasting allegiance. So there's nothing wrong with nations, but they are temporary communities and in no way ultimate. That's the biblical big picture of the nation of Israel and the nations of the world. But nationalism, the ideology according to which nations as such have some special claim on government, is a modern phenomenon. And the church's modern synthesis of social teaching provides some really helpful key principles for thinking about that specific question, the question of nationalism. The first key principle is human dignity. Every human, simply by virtue of being human and being made in the image of God, is worthy of a treatment that respects this dignity. This dignity does not depend on human laws or place of birth or standing in the community. It's prior to all of that and rooted in the creator God. Each human has personal dignity on account of their human nature. But according to the church's social teaching, this human nature calls us into community. 
It's only by living in active interdependence with other people that the human person reaches his or her potential. The most obvious example of such a community is the family, but there's also the community beyond the family, a community without whose support neither I nor my family can achieve our goods. So contrary to the vision of Hobbes and Locke, their claim that we are naturally at odds with one another and must enter into artificial political arrangements in order to protect ourselves, the church prefers Aristotle's understanding that we are, by our nature, political animals. In other words, we are animals, rational animals, who not only form family units, but also naturally come together to form a self-sufficient, fully grown political community in which humans can live a fully human life, what Aristotle calls a polis. For Aristotle, this was a Greek city-state, but in the thought of Thomas Aquinas, for example, he'll apply this idea of a fully grown community fairly fluidly to cities, kingdoms, provinces, and empires. But whatever level he's thinking of, he's always thinking of the political community as a natural organic growth arising from the nature of human persons and aimed at the flourishing of those persons. And that brings us to the next core principle of Catholic social teaching, the common good. Individuals, of course, act for their own individual good. They aim at their own happiness, their own flourishing, and that is only right and proper. But individuals in community have not only their individual goods to aim at, but also the common good, the good of the community. It's important to note that the common good in, the, in church teaching is not just the sum of all the individual goods in the community. And aiming at the common good is not just a matter of seeking to maximize the sum of individual happiness, as in utilitarianism. There's the crucial proviso that because of our understanding of human dignity, nobody in the community should be excluded from the common good. So, for example, say a democratic society votes to enslave 10% of its population so that the remaining 90% can pursue their own individual happiness more freely. It might, in fact, result that there is an increase in overall happiness. But this solution would fail to respect the common good since the resulting happiness would not be accessible to all. It would not be a genuinely common good a common possession. Whose responsibility is it to seek the common good? It's the responsibility of all members of the community. So as individuals, they each pursue their individual goods, guided by prudence. As individuals called by their human nature into community, they pursue the common good of the community in which they find themselves, guided by political prudence. Now, a community of really virtuous individuals might assiduously seek the common good by doing things like building roads and schools and developing a common fund and a postal system and so on. But because we're not always that virtuous and far-sighted, it's the special concern of political authority to see to it that the common good is not forgotten as we go about seeking our individual goods. This is why political institutions exist. Political institutions in Catholic social teaching um, are there to ensure that the common good remains truly common, that all persons have the necessary material and cultural and spiritual goods to achieve their full potential. 
the positive laws that these political authorities formulate and promulgate, they should then be consonant with the natural law, the law for human flourishing written into human nature by God. Now you might be asking as uh, good believers in the grace of God whether we can in fact achieve our full potential without the gift of grace. And of course the answer is no. We begin our journey to full and lasting happiness when we hear the preaching of the gospel and receive the sacraments of faith. And that journey will only be complete in heaven when we see God face to face and all our desires are satisfied. And in this sense, it is God himself who is the universal common good, the lasting happiness of all. Those who recognize this priority of God recognize that their allegiance to him is primary and prior to any earthly allegiances. And they recognize that their citizenship of the city of God is more fundamental than earthly citizenship, as the early Christians who wrote the letter to Diognetus recognized. And those who recognize that it is Jesus Christ who guides us authoritatively towards the universal common good, recognize that he, Christ, is universal king, or as medieval Christmas carols called him, the king of bliss. So leading us to that lasting happiness is what the church is for. But there is nevertheless a lesser happiness, what we could call natural happiness or temporal happiness or flourishing. And safeguarding that is the responsibility of political institutions, the state, whether the state takes the form of a monarchy or democracy or whatever it might be. The final core principle relevant to our discussion tonight is this. Humanity is one. This might seem very trite, worthy of a Beatles song, but it's important to note that this truth revealed to, is revealed to us in Scripture. Many non-biblical societies came up with origin myths for themselves or for their cities, but the Bible, for all its focus on the nation of Israel, begins with a story about the origin of all humans and goes on to tell stories which show God's interest, continued interest, in the whole human family. Under the influence of this universal biblical picture, Christians thinking about politics think readily of the whole world as a society, also because they have this eschatological vision, this vision of the end of all things when all these nations will be gathered before uh, the one who sits on the throne and the Lamb. So just to take an example of this um, Christian thinking about the whole world as one, uh, one society, we have St. Paul speaking to Greek philosophers in Athens. The God, he speaks of the God who made the world and everything in it, so this vision of creation. The God who made the world and everything in it, made from one man, every nation of men living on the face of the earth. And this God, Paul says to these pagan Greeks, is not far from each of us, for we are all his offspring. There he's actually quoting one of their own poets, but making it part of his gospel. We are all his offspring. In the city of God, St. Augustine speaks about the whole world as the third circle of human society. The first two being the family home, um, and the, the, the city, state, or the republic. And thinkers in the Thomistic tradition, like Francisco de Vitoria, are able to lay the foundations of international law 
because, as De Vittoria says, the world is, in a sense, a single community. And in recent times, especially in wartime, popes have consistently appealed to this principle. You can see some of these quotations, um, text number three to seven, um, on your handout. Uh, we are all of one common stock, of the same nature, members of the same society, says Benedict XVI at the beginning of the First World War. The human race, however diverse, says Pius XII, is one great commonwealth directed to the good of all nations. And at the height of the Cold War, Pope John XXIII wrote Pacem in Terrace, which repeatedly insists on, on this point. So this is the big picture of Catholic social teaching, against which Catholics do their thinking about nations and nationalism. Men and women have dignity and naturally form political communities aimed at safeguarding the common good of all members of these communities. And as well as being members of these political communities, they're also always members of the universal community of humanity. So how do nations and nationalism fit into that picture? Well, I described earlier different kinds of nationalism, and we'll go through them one by one. What about nationalism as national superiority? A nation that rules itself and by some magical, mystical destiny is called to rule others too. Nations of inferior quality, establishing that domination by force if necessary. This is clearly ruled out based on the principles we've just gone through. It fails to respect the human dignity of those judged to be inferior. It fails to respect the common good of the community of nations, claiming as it does a privileged portion of that common good and excluding others from full participation in it. And in its more extreme forms, it can be a form of idolatry, making ultimate what is not truly ultimate, worshipping the nation instead of the God of all nations. And the most eloquent Christian polemic against this type of nationalism is Pope Pius XI's Mit Brennen der Zorge uh, against Nazism. And it's, it's a must read for anyone interested in, in this question. So that's nationalism as national superiority. What about nationalism as exclusion of minorities? The kind of nationalism that isn't imperialistic, but proposes to expel or exterminate those not counted as belonging to the dominant nation. And that too is clearly ruled out by the principle of the common good. The political authority is responsible for ensuring that all citizens, all members of the political community, have access to the common good. And so this political authority must have a special care for minorities. That's emphasized in papal teaching, uh, as you'll see in your handouts. A special care that includes safeguarding the capacities, capacity of these minority communities to use their own languages, to dress as they traditionally dress, to sing their own songs, and so on. So, we can set aside those two forms of extreme nationalism, but what about the gentler proposition that each nation has the right to govern itself, that each nation has the absolute right to form a political community? Well, the most obvious question to ask here is whether it makes sense to think of nationhood, remember a very nebulous concept, as the foundation of political community. Nationhood, this vague, real, but vague phenomenon, 
simply can't bear the weight that this form of nationalism wants it to bear. It would inevitably lead to a constant series of secessions and invasions as nations changed their definitions. Nationalism in this form makes of our sub-rational feelings and instincts the foundation of political life. The church has consi consistently responded that it is our God-given nature as social animals endowed with reason that truly founds political life. People of different national feelings can use their reason to seek the common good of all in their political community, to agree, for example, on postal systems and train timetables and so on. And while this rationalism, this political rationalism, might not be as exciting as the romance of nationalism, it's certainly more stable. And so, from the perspective of Catholic social teaching, while nations certainly can form states, there is no absolute right to do so. The question that must be asked in advance of secession or declaration of independence is whether secession will serve the common good of each community involved and the common good of all humanity. So, for example, a multinational state which honours the rights of all its citizens and provides for them is a far better situation than a series of mononational states which struggle to do so. Of course, if a particular national community has been consistently mistreated by political authorities and all means of redress have been exhausted, and there is a well-founded hope that secession might lead to stable political communities, then secession might well be justified, including secession involving force if necessary. That argument, though, should not be based on the principle of nationhood, as if that was all sufficient, but on the principle of the common good. The national feeling or national energies that are harnessed in the fight for independence can and should be harnessed then in the service of the common good of all the citizens of the resulting state, including remaining minorities. And this new state will be called to play its role in the community of nations, contributing to the common good of all humanity, including that of former national enemies. So if we want to think of one model of the way in which national feelings can be harnessed for the common good without leading to the exclusion of minorities or rejection of the international community, I would suggest considering the example of Karol Wojtyla, Pope John Paul II. We don't have time here to consider him in detail, but think about how, as a young writer and actor, he consciously inherited and preserved the Polish national inheritance, often at great personal risk, while appreciating also the Jewish minority in Poland and loving always the great human family, a love which became so obvious in his travels as Pope and especially in the World Youth Day gatherings he inaugurated, where so many national flags fly alongside each other without competition, precisely because these flags are flown to honour the Lamb, to whom all sovereignty belongs and whose reign will never end. So, can we come to some kind of a conclusion after opening up all of these various cans of worms? Well, how about an analogy? National feelings in political life are like 
the passions or emotions in the moral life. They are neither good nor bad in themselves. It's simply the case that large groups of humans form communities based on certain commonalities that distinguish these groups from others. And any account of politics which ignores this phenomenon does so at its peril. But these energies which bind us into national communities can, like the passions in the moral life, be turned to good or evil. They can serve or diminish the common good of the political communities in which we find ourselves. They can, on the one hand, lead to hatred, oppression, enslavement, genocide, but they can also lead people to think beyond their own private good, to think beyond their family life, to pay their taxes willingly, to contribute to public schools and hospitals and to the common good in general. National feelings then, I think, can be harnessed for the common good. As the Scottish theologian Doug Gay puts it, the lions and dragons of nationalism can be tamed. And it is perhaps the big picture of Christian faith that best helps us to tame the beasts of nationalism. In Jesus, we see the inauguration of a new creation, a community which, in which our differences will not be suppressed, but in which our differences will be united. We will be united in a single community under God. However much we love our fellow nationals, that love should be informed by our vision of the end of all things, where all the nations will be gathered, speaking one pure speech with one shared happiness and one king. Thank you.